You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today, we have a really, really interesting topic, the Data Ops Manifesto, an interview with Christopher Berg. So, stay tuned. And now, the music. <music> Christopher is a really, really interesting person. He comes from a completely different background, much more from this data science background. But there's a lot that we can learn from this Data Ops Manifesto. We'll actually not go into everything in there. There's much more on that. So check out the show notes on theeffectivestatistician.com to learn more about it. See who he is, is, learn a little bit more about his background. Also, we cover a little bit of that in the podcast and learn from this data ops manifesto. The podcast is produced in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. You can't believe it, but the reduced rate is only £20 for non-high-income countries, and this is really, really nice content, and all the community access you get for just £95 for high-income countries. Just visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of The Effective Statistician. And today I'm talking with Christopher Berg. How are you doing? I am doing excellent. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. Very good. Today we have a really interesting topic that I stepped over in the World Wide Net. And um, it's something that speaks to lots of different points that are highly controversial discussed in the medical uh, statistics community. And I thought this piece of paper that you wrote, the Data Ops Manifesto, speaks actually to quite a lot of these. And it's written very much from uh, your data science perspective. And I think it highlights lots of, lots of very interesting points. So let's have a look into this data manifesto. But first, maybe you can introduce a little bit about yourself, what you're doing, and how you got into the data analytics space or data science space. Yeah, so I'm Chris Berg. I'm, I'm head of a company called Data Kitchen here in Cambridge, Massachusetts uh, in the United States. I'm an, <laughs> a bit older, so I've been in the technology field for a while. And so I started off and went to college. I taught in Africa uh, mathematics for a few years, and then I went to graduate school and studied artificial intelligence back when it was a, a very small corner of nerddom and not at all cool. Um, and then I, I wrote software for a while, worked at NASA and, and labs at MIT, and then managed teams and delivered software. And then about 15 years ago, I started to focus on 
uh, analytics for specifically for healthcare. And I worked at a company that was run by a physician and I was the chief operating officer. So I had statisticians and data scientists who worked for me. I had people who did prepare data, um, now are called data engineers, uh, people who were you know, analysts who did visualization. And we had lots of different customers and, and lots of different users of our analytics. One of the key things is that the, the data itself that we were working on was, was sort of constantly changing and, and often quite erroneous. Um, naturally, my, my customers would get upset with me in particular if their data was bad or if it was late or if something was wrong. And I just uh, never really liked being a nerd, never really liked having my customers call up and, and yell at me when things were wrong. Also had a boss since he was a doctor and went to Harvard Medical School who was very, had a lot of ideas. And when I took someone who knew the data and someone who knew the statistics and someone in new visualization and put them in a room and we'd figure out something to do that would take two weeks. And I would go back to my boss and he would look at me in his, uh, his Harvard medical school way and say, Chris, I thought that should take not two weeks, but two hours. <laughs> I was just expecting, don't you just need to press a button for that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he, he thought he was being reasonable by saying two hours too, you know, and then the last thing is uh, we had hired a bunch of smart people who all had, you know, master's degrees or PhDs and they knew how to program. Some people had favorite tools. There were R people who did R versus Python. We had a Stata guy who really loved Stata. You know, we had people who liked different visualization tools, people like different databases, ways of preparing data. And I realized that everyone sort of loves their tools. And yet our customers wanted us to innovate. And so I lived this life and, um, and in some ways suffered, I guess, of how do you go, how do you run a very low error rate um, data and analytics operation? Um, how do you innovate? Um, how do you add new ideas um, into that? And then how um, do you give people the freedom to express themselves in whatever tool or language that they want? And um, a, a couple of uh, guys that I worked in the company with, we um, started to call something about five or seven years ago, Agile Analytic Operations. And, you know, we had some customers, we did some work and uh, no one is kind of a mouthful to call something agile analytic operations. And about, I guess, about three years ago now, in two, early 2017, we thought data ops was a shorter way to call agile analytic operations. And so we started to call it data ops. And then no one knew what data ops was. There wasn't a definition of it. There wasn't a set of principles. And we realized we kind of had to start at the beginning um, and, and sort of explain what the ideas that we were talking about were. And so... That's where we uh, started to create the manifesto and, and sent it around for feedback for a bunch of people and published the manifesto as just a single web page. And amazingly enough, we've gotten six or seven thousand people to to sign the manifesto, you know, who are interested in these these principles. And it's exciting to see it referenced in conference proceedings around the world and that these these principles um, who, who, frankly, we've stolen from a bunch of different places uh, and put together in a different way are that people who do data science or statistics or engineering or anything in the value chain of data and analytics find find valuable and interesting. Yeah, in terms of that, maybe you can explain a little bit deeper what you understand by data ops. Can you give some examples, maybe? Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, I view it as a um, philosophy, a culture of how people interact with a technical data and analytics technology. And so what data ops means is it's, it's kind of comes from uh, DevOps and software. It comes from agile and software. It comes from lean manufacturing. 
And it's a, a set of ideas that uh, focus on lowering your errors, being able to get feedback quickly from your customer, being able to measure and improve your process, and also collaborate between team members. And so for us, it's a set of principles, a philosophy, a guiding principle that is, you know, in order to make your customers successful, deliver value in small little chunks and then iterate and improve upon it. Instead of spending months to kind of create something, can you do something um, quicker and smaller and get feedback quick, uh, get feedback uh, on that? Instead of writing three months on your specifications and then develop six months your all your tables and all your visualizations and your dashboards all together and then first time speak with the customer, have something quick within a day or something like this, ask your customer, does that approximately go into the right direction and then go off from there, yeah? Yeah, yeah, because I think it's it's humility is is really the center of it, that... Um, you know, we're all smart people who know some math, but do we really know the way the world works? And there are people who are out in the world who are dealing with, you know, customers or supply chains or doctors or um, other, and, and they actually have something to say and can data help them. Hmm. And so instead of kind of closing the door in your office and spending months saying, I think I know what this is, give something small in a manageable size, and then ask someone who's uh, asked many people for feedback, and then take their feedback and tweak it a bit and improve, and then uh, cycle through many iterations. Because I guess after doing analytics for a, a long time, I, I sort of believe that, and I use the term analytics in, in the very broadest term. I mean, data science, data engineering, statistics, visualization, governance, you know, and, and all that set of activities mm -hmm. that take data to deliver value, I call data and data analytics. And I think that process is somewhat of a random walk where if, if you want to get to the end of the random walk to something that is valuable for your customer, you go left, you go right, you go back, you go forth, and it's very, you're often very lucky if you get there in one giant step. And how fast you go through each step of that random walk, how you cycle through going left and right to get to the point where you've got value, I think is an, an important aspect. And so it's a, it kind of comes from humility in the face of, you know, we've all had a lot of math classes and those are hard things. And, but really, do you know what the data says? Do you know how that fits in with another person's worldview or another set of people's worldview? And so I think it's, um, It comes, I, I, at least from my, my standpoint, it kind of comes from both humility and, and also just uh, some lived experiences about the ways people interact with data. Yeah. In terms of data, when you think about data, you mostly think about data that is continuously generated uh, through certain business processes and whatsoever. It's not kind of set up as, as an experiment in, in the beginning, usually, isn't it? Sometimes it is, but oftentimes you're right, it's not. It's, it's data that's uh, coming from some set of activities in the world. And in, in some cases, it is an experiment where people are doing an A and B experiment, or it could come from a clinical trial, or it could be con data that's continuously coming off of a, a, off of a website or delivered incrementally. And so, you know, the sort of start and end date on the data sometimes is, is infinite, but often, oftentimes it, you know, it is, it is, is a set date that people are looking uh, to do analytics. In data ops, we don't particularly care whether the data is 
itself in nice rows and columns, whether it comes as a once a month or comes every once a second, whether it's streamed or whether the data is, you know, hierarchical or unstructured. In some sense, it has at least the manifesto itself has got uh, a set of ideas about that how you manage data is, is sort of independent of its of its source and, and, and type. And that there's a great, because uh, data ops itself is more of a people and process idea than it is a particular methodology to uh, analyze data or a type. It's, you know, sort of supersedes. I don't know if it supersedes, but it's just, it's in a different category than big data or data science or machine learning or statistics, all that. They're, um, they're next to each other, but they're not, they're different ideas. Um, and, and data ops is, is more about how people work with their tools than it is about the actual work that they're doing or the data that they're working. I think that's something what you can see if uh, someone looks into the references you provide and uh, you, you mentioned yourself, see the uh, Agile manifesto, DevOps manifesto, and then you also mentioned Deming's 14 principles, which he outlined in this Out of This Crisis publication. So if you think about these three sources and probably there were some some more sources as well what inspired you most of these well i think it's because i had a set of experiences in my life i grew up in the central part of the united states in in wisconsin and my dad was a you know a, he did a career that doesn't exist he repaired telephones and he belonged to a union and in the early 1980s he bought a toyota which at the time the united states was very fearful of japan's manufacturing prowess and he took a lot of he had a lot of problems with his fellow union employees that he drove didn't drive an american car he drove a japanese car but my father felt it was a cheaper and better car which in fact it was cheaper and better and then in college i read a book called the machine that changed the world about the sort of manufacturing process that goes in and so when i started writing software and managing software teams i also needed guidance um, since i'm not a natural leader on how you actually how do you actually manage teams like what works? And then, you know, when I started to manage teams who did data science and analytics. And so for me, the I, I just see there's a body of knowledge when you have a bunch of people working together and what they work on is sort of a shared, technically complicated thing. And that shared, technically complicated thing could be an assembly line. It could be a piece of software and the system that delivers that software into production. Or it could be uh, data and analytics and the system that delivers data and analytics into production. And there's a common framework and a set of ideas that I think is uh, goes across those. And they have all these names, you know, lean or total quality management or Deming or DevOps or Agile. You know, we use the term data ops, but I actually think there's kind of a greater concept here of just understanding the way people work together in a technically complicated world and how to... Um, uh, the, the organizational principles and communication principles. And so that's why it references all those different areas, because I think they're all they're all kind of the same thing. They all sort of at, at some level of abstraction, they're kind of the same idea, because I, as if some of your readers or some of your listeners have um, have found managing, um, you know, managing technical people and managing technical processes is is curiously hard. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> well, we know all that from our managers that struggle with us, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's part of it that's creativity, right? And there's part of it that has to do with, you know, the, the emotions of the people involved. Because 
some people, you know, part of the manifesto says reduce heroism, which you would think is a really good thing. People being heroes and trying hard, you would want that. But you, you don't actually, because the side effects of heroism often are creating complexities that will hurt you later on. In the software world, they call it technical debt. Um, and that mm. debt has to be paid at some point. And oftentimes heroism leads to burnout, leads to people having too much ownership of this their piece of the technical assembly line, and they become then a bottleneck. And so heroism may be good and may be good a few percentage of the time. The idea is we're all part of this technically complicated system. You know, we all sort of share responsibility for it and, and share upkeep of it. And heroism can help maybe move that system along a little bit farther in, in the short term. But in the long term, there's a, there's a price to be paid. And so that's why reduce heroism is part of the, is part of the manifesto, um, where you would think, you know, we all watch superhero movies. You know, heroism is good in one, in, in one respect. Saving people from a burning building, obviously, it's a good thing. But um, in the world of data science and statistics and car manufacturing or even uh, software development heroism has a lot of counterproductive uh, aspect. Actually, I completely agree with you in, in that regard. I think if I once talked with a colleague and he was not working in the statistics department, but in the clinical operations department, and he always had things well under control. He was never stressed out. His projects were always run really, really smoothly. And he never needed to be a hero because he had things very, very good under control. He was very good in communicating and planning, in planning in buffer and planning in good checks into the system so that there was no surprises. And he had one problem. Because he never had these kind of emergency things and, you know, these heroic approaches to, to save the project at the end of the deadline and working like crazy hours. And he didn't have the exposure to, to senior min management because, of course, if, <laughs> if you're a hero, you get and, and you save the project in the last minute and, and work till 2 p.m. a couple of nights. And then you, you know, you get this management exposure. They may even bring you some pizza in the evening, but yeah, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, one of, uh, we have a customer who I just was talking with like uh, a few months ago has got the same problem, right? When you've got, when you're not a hero or you don't have a lot of problems that need to be fixing, you're, you're quiet. Yep. And that's, you know, I think people need to respect the quiet of, of, of well-made things. And there's a reason why it is well-made. And I think there's other ways that you can advertise your, your excellence when you follow these principles, other than just, just heroism and, and uh, kind of look at me. Uh, and I think there's a, a, another part of the idea here is that you should, in some ways, measure, measure the system that you're operating yep. on. And so you can get analytic about the processing that happens in your analytics. And you can use those sort of measurements of, of quality and speed and errors and change rates and cycle time as a way to show how awesome you are in comparison to everyone else who's running around crazy at the last minute being heroes. But you're actually, at the end of the day, getting more done. And, 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 and it's better. And you write in, in this point of your manifesto, create sustainable and scalable data analytic teams and processes. And I like that very much. Looking into sustainability and scalability is, is very, very important. That requires that you have a, yeah, a systematic 
view on things rather than uh, jumping from one fire to the next and uh, feel always like you're part of the fire brigade rather than of the statistics department so yeah yeah and I, I see that as a aspect of people I, I see that as a management mm -hmm. problem and so when I started to delve into this and like why was all there you know I, I joined an organization that did analytics that was in pure firefighting and heroism mode right and and People were running around trying to fight fires, and my boss was saying, you know, two hours, and I was, I remember I, uh, recent in the job, and I, uh, it, the date was my, my birthday, which is October 18th, and I had turned 42, and one of the people who worked for me had the same birth date, and I remember it because he had turned 24, which is the, you know, the opposite of 42, and I, I was talking to him, and he just started to cry in my office because he was really upset that, he couldn't satisfy the boss that we were running around with this chaos. And it really got to me because he, he was a wonderful person. He had gone to great schools. He was working very hard. And it was my job to put him as a, as a leader, to put him in a system and a set of processes that made it, that made him feel that he was contributing. And so in some ways, the hardest part of accepting these principles as a leader is that it's your job to do this. That kind of agency as a leader as a leader is quite hard to do because you might be tempted to blame the weakest individual on your team or blame others. Um, and so the shame that goes along with it and the blame in some organizations are not, you know, it's tempting to do as a leader to say, okay, it's my person on a team, it's their fault. But usually these, and that's the idea why I like reading Deming, because he basically says almost 95% of the time when there's a problem, it's the problem in the systems and the processes that the team mm -hmm. work in. And only 5% of the time, it's an individual, you know, a bad actor. Yep. And if you think about that and you actually believe that to be true, then you have to believe what comes from that is that, well, who owns the process that people work in? Well, that's you as a leader. And therefore, 95% of the problems then are your fault to fix. And that's a tough, <laughs> that's a tough thing to actually uh, realize is that you've got a lot of yep. work to do. Yep, completely agree. I think lots of the problems that we generate come from the top and then cascade down uh, through the organizations. So, and that speaks really to the point that you mentioned earlier, that this manifesto is not so much about what analytics to to use, but, but to look at the overall system and the processes and the people work more from that regard. So let's have a look into a couple of the other principles. So, so uh, you have listed 18 principles, and I would really encourage you as a listener to have a look on our homepage, the, uh, the Effective Statistician, and there you can find all these 18, including a link, of course, to the manifesto itself and where you can sign it. We'll not look into all 18 today. That would take too long, but let's look into a couple of these. So the second one you call Value Working Analytics. We believe the primary measure of data analytics performance is the degree to which insightful analytics are delivered, incorporating accurate data atop robust frameworks and systems. Where is that coming from? <laughs> well, in the so you want your work to be valuable, right? And in I have noticed in technical people, including myself. We like to build almost crystal castles of abstractions that 
spend a lot of time working through all the detailed issues. And that's fantastic. But at the end of the day, value comes from the delivery, not from the fact that you've built something. So you can build the most an ornate and wonderful analysis with using all the modern frameworks and tools and methods. But if it's not in the hands of a user to get feedback, it has no value because the feedback itself on what you've created is fundamentally important because you're, if you do believe that data and analytics is a random walk, then that feedback helps you tune what you do and actually saves, maximizes the amount of work you don't have mm -hmm. to do. So um, it really is about getting feedback from your users based on really value something working rather than something that is to be created. Yeah, there's two things that kind of really stand out here in this statement. One is insightful analytics. So I think that speaks to the point that you want to have something that is actually useful and creates insights for the persons that want to consume the analytics. And the other thing is robust frameworks and systems. So I think that means that you can be actually sure that what you got out of the uh, analytics makes sense and is not uh, just some, you know, random things that uh, might fall over once you have a little bit of a different look at the data and maybe a little bit of a different system Uh, you couldn't replicate it. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. I guess in following these, I've seen people do do different things. And, and one is that they, they focus on, you know, the working analytics. And what they give up in the, in the short cycle is actually um, accurate data. They'll say, hey, how does this look? The data is kind of wrong, but does this look in general like what you're looking for? And people mm -hmm. can give you feedback. And then they go off and then work on the sort of accuracy. And, and maybe it's, you know, it, it completely changes the data or not. And so it, it's not as if you have to have everything perfect before your customer gets it. Or you could trade off on a robust framework and say, because you're working towards all these things, robust frameworks, accurate data, insight that's delivered to the customer. And how you get there, it's you, you have an opportunity to have a dialogue with your customer. But, you know, it's, it's sort of the, that's the end measure of success is you've got I've got analytics that somebody is getting insight from and it, the data itself is accurate. And the way I'm getting the data is kind of a robust framework that is not going to cause me problems, you know, six months from now. And the term robust has got a lot of meaning, but like you know, that's that's what you're shooting for, I think, in, in, is to value is to, that's what it means. That's where value comes from. We should measure how good we are doing things on these three dimensions, insightful analytics, in accurate data and robust frameworks and systems. And the better we can be on these three dimensions altogether, the better our job is. So, yeah, and I think so. Yeah, I think that's right. one, one way to think about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. The next point in your principles is embrace change. Given that I'm a big fan of change management, <laughs> that uh, speaks very much to me. You say, we welcome evolving customer needs. And in fact, we embrace them to generate competitive advantage. We believe the most efficient, effective, and agile method of communication with customers is face-to-face -face conversation. When I read that and knowing that I'm working most of the time from home, I thought, <laughs> hmm, yeah, 
face-to-face is really great, uh, but actually most for me is video-to-video. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, you know, I, I think having face-to-face conversations is a discussion that's unusual while recording a podcast. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think it comes from a couple of aspects, right? I, I think technical people tend to be introverted and, and, and tend to be more interested in what's happening in their head than what's happening with other people. So this is a way to say, you know, go out, the, go out into the world and talk with someone mm-hmm. and do that as part of what you're doing. Get out of the expectation that your customer is going to give you very clear guidance because they may not know and mm-hmm. they're on their own journey. And so expect that they're, once they see something, that they're going to have follow-up questions, that those follow-up questions are going to make more work and embrace the change that that re- requires. Because a lot of times technical people, whether it's software or analytics, say, the customer said this and I did it, but now they didn't want that. So the customer is an idiot because they didn't know what they wanted. And I think that's true. Customers, <laughs> your customers don't know what they want. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a journey. And embrace the change that goes with that. And understand that the dialogue that you... Because uh, we all have this strange gift, right? That we can un- take data and apply math and statistics and visualization and algorithms and software code and tools to, to render render that to be useful by people. And that's a small part of the population, honestly, I think can actually do that. Well, there's a lot of people who know their business, who know their domain, are able to interpret those graphs and models and lists in a way, but they're relying on us to actually, with our particular expertise to to do that. We all have our skills. And I think um, working, embracing the change in the dialogue that happens and the give and take with a customer, I think is important. And a lot of this actually is some of these ideas are are sort of stolen and the the language is stolen from the Agile manifesto or adapted. And then, you know, there's some words put in instead of software, it's insight, but it's, it's that idea is that your customer is not always right. And that's okay. Working with them to get towards what right look like and and analytics in, in a lot of ways is a river of questions. It's not just you work hard and give an answer. It's that you work hard and get an answer. And then there's five follow-up questions. Yep. That's yep. that's really good, actually. If you've got five follow-up questions, you're you're actually doing something that's that's valuable to them because that sparks more thoughts and more questions that come in their mind. And and does the data tell you this or not? Mm-hmm. And that's that's what your job is as, as a person who has that, that strange set of skills is to help answer whether the data says that or not. Yeah, when I read that, I had a story in my mind where a team member came to me and said, this stupid physician, I sent him all my, my SAP long ago and he said he's fine with that. And there was clearly written that I will use a generalized linear mixed model with these interaction terms and these fixed effects and random effects. And now he wants something different. Why didn't he speak up when I sent him the SAP? I said, did you have a discussion with him? Did you explain what that means to him? No, I sent it to him via email and he looked at it, reviewed it, made some comments about a couple of things. But he never commented on this section. I said, hmm, <laughs> guess why? <laughs> yeah. so, so, so it's, I think it speaks to this point that we can't assume that our business partners, our customers understand exactly what we are doing. And we need to walk them through it. We need to explain things and we need to 
show them what the end result will look like or sketch it out so that they can make a decision on whether that's what they need. So, so I know lots of uh, physicians only really understand a table when there are numbers in it, real numbers, yeah. because beforehand they, they just can't see it. They just don't understand it. They can't, can't imagine what will be in there. And so, um, you need to have it, you know, explain it to them and, and show them a couple of different scenarios that could come out. And I completely agree with you. If you have very good results and you have a very good analytics, then that will nearly always trigger follow-up questions. And if you're really good in your job, you can then pull out a couple of further analysis and we expect these uh, <laughs> questions. <be. laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, I think you should often expect that they go beyond what you what you originally done. And that, that's good if you... If you're engendering more questions, if you're answering some questions and engendering more questions, keep up that. I, I think in some ways I use this. It's a Data analytics is kind of a river of change because if you handle up all the follow-up questions, because then sometimes what happens in analytics is you, you're doing an analysis that's one-off and that has more questions that follow up. And that's great. You've done something well. It's meant had more questions. But then there's another branch of that is you've done something well I want this to be shared to my entire organization, and I want you to update it every week. And I've seen mm -hmm. analysts not jump with joy with that, but actually slump their shoulders and walk out of meetings dejected when you would think they would have been successful, that they've looked at the data in a way they yep. developed a new metric analysis model statistic, and now they've got to live with it for the next year um, because somebody in their organization said, this is so important, everyone's got to see it. And so I think there's partly, um, you know, it's it's really an interesting field because partly it's this creative endeavor, but partly you've also got to think about how to make what you do and productionizable or sustainable that you can, you know, not get caught in that situation, and which is not bad, but it's actually, it's not really being caught. It's it's actually a really good thing. That means you've done your good job. It's, it's strange that you mm. would think I've done analysis and I've got five follow-up questions and, you know, people are, are, are upset or I've done analysis and people want me to have it in production every, you know, to the entire organization. Why are they upset? You've done a really good job and people want to share it or ask follow-up questions. And that change in, is, is also, I think, that's why I think embracing changes is up near the top. Yeah, I, I know of a, of a vendor that was working with a sponsor for a couple of different projects and that vendor never get follow-up questions from a certain part of the business. And that was actually a really, really bad sign because obviously people couldn't do anything with the, with the analysis that were provided. People were stopped. Uh, were stopping using this vendor because they couldn't get any value out of it, yeah. and uh, should have been alarm sign to the to the vendors that they never got any any questions about the analysis. So, so that's a really good point. Next point that I would like to step into is principle number six. And when I read that, I said, "Wow, that's a really, really." revolutionary idea, at least in the companies that I have worked in. So let's have a look into this. We believe that the best analytic insight algorithms, architectures, requirements, and designs emerge from self-organizing teams. 
When I think of lots of the big pharma organizations, I see they're pretty hierarchical overall. How do you think about self-organizing teams in these big organizations? Well, it's it's, it's a challenge. And so let, let me talk to it in, in, in different ways. Mm-hmm. A lot of big organizations are fearful of companies like Spotify or Google or Netflix who have really embraced these agile principles and have pushed the responsibility down to the lowest level to be able to actually do things. Like Amazon talks about the two pizza team and they try to organize because two pizzas can feed the whole team for lunch. And what that means is uh, Spotify has these squads where there are a number of small people and they work together. And they're a, a huge believer in these sort of agile principles that small teams should own have ownership. Because if you look at studies of how people who work in offices are most are, are, are happiest, is it's when they when they have um, you know goals that are clearly stated, but they own the means to achieve those goals. I think that's important that it's not saying you should be able to do whatever you want. I'm not talking about holacracy or some other craziness. I'm saying that as a manager, you should set the goals for what your organization and what your team should do but you should leave it up to them to figure out how to achieve those goals. And then they should have to live with the consequences of how they, they achieve that. And so I think the best, you know, the best thing in agility is to sort of let the team figure it out. You don't have to work with your team. You've said here the goals. Okay, you own the means to the end. We've agreed on what the end is. And as a leader, I've kind of, I have the responsibilities for setting the goals, but you, you've got to get there. And I think that's difficult for some organizations. And it's, 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 uh, it's further difficult because it's a, um, it's a change in how you think about your own personal agency and what you expect responsibility for. So in a lot of organizations, the data, the data value chain has been broken up into pieces where I own the ingestion of data and profiling. Another person owns the development of the schema. Another person owns the development of the transform. There's another person who does the quality assurance, another one who writes the requirements. There's a project manager, then another person who develops the model, then another person who develops the visualization, and then someone who's called data governance, which does the documentation. And they have these very specialized roles that are horizontal across the organization. And uh, yeah, it's good. It's comforting to know a certain piece of technology. But, you know, self-organizing teams doesn't mean that you don't have to have a specialty, but it does mean that you, you know, you work in conjunction with a team and you're all you may not. Those roles are not fully defining your job. So you may do some data transformation, but you also may do some QA. You also may get to design some schema. And in that way, you're you're accepting more responsibility and change. And that does create some some consternation in people when they're um, being asked to actually own own things, where a number of organizations, you don't own anything, you just are part of the process. And if you follow the organization's development process, whereas you follow these documentation standards, and you do uh, your work, that matters. And I've, I've, I've heard many companies where, well, we're following our process. And that's great. But I think, you know, having self-organizing teams you also own the result of that process. And does the customer like it? Is it successful? Did it work? Not that you actually followed the development, the analytic development lifecycle that has been written in a documentation in your, in your organization. 
And so owning the result is hard and self-organizing, it's actually a bit harder. But at the end of the day, people are happier doing it because that yep. fits with the psychological studies of, of what make people happy at work. Yeah, I think if you speak about these psychological studies, it's all nicely summarized in a book by Daniel Pink, where he speaks yeah. about autonomy, purpose and mastery. And that these really drive people forward and, and uh, lead to really motivated people. But I've never thought about that from a, from a team perspective that I always thought about that as, as a personal thing or individual thing, not so much as a team thing. But yeah, I think it may probably makes sense if I look back in my career and I think about teams where we had very little management involvement, uh, but we had very clear goals and it, uh, it was a very small team. These were really, really nice teams to work in. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. Also at that time, yeah, I, I didn't see myself only as a statistician. I was, you know, also doing lots of programming. I was also uh, writing the protocol. I was also, you know, helping with the CRF, all kind of different things. And so we really bonded together as a team. Yeah, it was, it was great. Yeah. 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 I, I, I see I see where this is coming from. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's, you know, not all teams get together. There's personality conflicts. I mean, but I, I feel the same way when I've worked in small teams where we've had you know, we've had autonomy with clear goals and we've been able to uh, work through all the challenges that come with that and had, you know, ownership and, you know, you, you care for each other and I think you can do, you can do great things. And so that, you know, I think that does come with self-organization because there's other manifestos out there that talk about you should also decide how you want to organize your team. Do you have weekly meetings or daily meetings? How do you track your progress, et cetera? And if you, uh, the less you, the less you define, the more empowered people are. And, uh, you know, that scares some people, but it, everyone's had the experience, I think, of, of, of success in that realm. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a careful balance, but I, I, I like, I yeah. like self-organization. I like self-organized, self-motivated teams. I hope at least everybody had that experience inside or outside of work. And uh, because sometimes you also can have that as a sports team or, or something like this. Let's go into the next point. So, uh, and that's point number eight, which speaks to reflect. Analytic teams should fine-tune their operational performance by self-reflecting at regular intervals on feedback provided by their customers, themselves, and operational statistics. I really like that because I'm a big fan of, uh, so, so to say, after-action reviews and, and looking into what went well and what didn't went well, what kind of feedback we got, what were successes, what were failures, and what can we do differently to to improve things? Actually, I think that's not only true for teams. I think that's true also for, for individuals. And I think it's a good habit to do that on a weekly, quarterly basis to, to look back into things. But you also mentioned in their operational statistics. Is that something 
kind of that speaks to to an earlier point which we discussed about where you measure insightful analytics how good you're working with accurate data and and robust frameworks or systems or is that do you see something different in terms of operational statistics there yeah so i think how you measure what's happening with the processing of data. So one aspect is the data correct. Are there there quality statistics? The other, is it on time? Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, the other, are the people satisfied? And so there's these sort of error-related statistics that I think you want to keep track of and, you know, break those errors out by perhaps by the data provider or the systems and transforms that that worked. Um, and then there's other set of statistics on how your team is is collaborating, how fast they're actually able to deploy into production. Are they meeting things on time? And that helps you understand whether you are successful or not, because if you're late week in and week out or you're giving uh, if your customers believe that that's bad data, even down to things that are much more squishy and, and qualitative, like there's something called a net promoter score, where people basically say, you know, uh, in the consumer world, would I buy you again? Yes or no. In the data analytics world is, is you know, am I satisfied? Yes or no. I'm trying to understand and track that. It's a good, these things can be indicators of problems. And I think, you know, you could call it, the, it's called reflect, but you could also equally as name it, name this stop the blame game instead of reflect because um, yep. uh, assi- assignment of blame is often an, an inhibitor of uh, continuous improvement or, or team improvement. There's always more problems than you can possibly fix in any organization and finding the right problems to fix is often important. And then hiding problems from your team members or your superiors or your customers is is an easy way sometimes to avoid having to fix those problems. And uh, we talked about the reduction in heroism. We also think, we, I think the blame culture has to go away, the shame and blame culture that some organizations oh, yeah. around data. Because you can't reflect on your processes if you don't love, to, to a certain degree, love your errors because your errors are your opportunities to do better. And I had to in that job where I, you know, the I was 42 and the guy was 24 and, and crying, I had to go through a period of change of trying to get the organization to actually stop being fearful and shaming and, and loving their errors and looking for opportunities to improve um, and reflecting on it and, and retrospectives. And that's a, yeah, that's a different emotional stance that a leader has to have. And I think that's much more because we're dealing with these big, complicated technical things, and we're all sort of touching a piece of it, no one has, you know, very few people have the whole system in their, in their head. You have to have some, you have to encourage people to speak up. And so, you know, by not assignment of, of blame and, and, and Deming talks about this, the software people talk about this. And I think we need to kind of talk about this and, and, and urge teams to stop assigning blame and shame and start reflecting and, and improving. Um, because that's it, it is just a much better place to work when you there's a term that we have that I've heard a bunch of times called cover, you know, cover your ass, CYA. And <laughs> organizations that are like that are just they're so hard to they're so hard to actually make change in or improve because no one wants to admit that they're wrong. Actually, I recorded a complete episode about uh managing mistakes and and it's not about covering up but but about you know uh pointing them out and the best way to manage mistakes is if you see something that you messed up that you directly speak up because yeah for for lots of different reasons and then if you have a culture that is not this blame and finger pointing culture that encourages that very much 
Yeah. So in terms of operational statistics, one nerdy thing, do you have actually a dashboard for your operational statistics? I, I think so. Um, and I was just having a lunch with a guy who's taking over a more business analytic team. And he's got about 15 people that works for him. It's a company of 4,000 people. And he was asking me, well, what should I track? And, and, and I think you do need to track things. You do need a dashboard. And I think that having even a simple one done in Excel is helpful because it also helps you say to your team, here's what I'm focused on and here's how I'm, I'm measuring you and also allows you to, to give a sense of your success to your boss because your analytics in some ways is, is insight is a squishy concept. Right. Mm -hmm. We all know it, see it, but like, wow, that was really insightful. But then you're only as good as your last analysis. And so by having a dashboard or a spreadsheet or something that says, here's here's how I'm measuring my team's success in in deliveries and errors and productivity, survey results and net promoter scores, I've I've got a sense of of that I'm doing well and here's the set of metrics I'm looking at. And in a lot of ways, as a leader in an organization, you are contending for resources for other parts of the organization. And I think to, the, to that extent, having a dashboard or some set of metrics that you're tracking for your, for your team can bring, bring you, uh, it, it can show that as a leader, you're awesome, or also can show your team that, uh, you know, here, here's how I'm thinking about uh, how you work. Because oftentimes people don't want to provide the data that is useful to do, and smart people don't want to provide the data to actually help your analytic reports out to measure. So yeah. I think it's good. I think it, it doesn't have to be complicated. I mean, it could just be a, a nicely formatted Excel spreadsheet or, you know, it could be all the way up to a, a whole process that's automatically built off of, uh, you know, running data. But, you know, and anything in between would be useful. Just just measure. If you really believe that companies should be data-driven, then your team should be data-driven about the work that they do. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. We are already quite an advance in, in the time. So, so let's go quickly to three other uh, points. Make it reproducible. I think that is a really, really important thing. And it's something that is fundamental to all kind of uh, medical research. You know, if you can't reproduce it, then it's, well, it's not trustworthy. So yeah, when I read that, I thought, hmm, that's really nice to read it here as well. In your world, where where is why is that so important there? Well, like in business statistics, right? You you want to be able to you want to be able to develop things in a, in a quick way. So you want to say how did how did I get to what's in production? Can I redo that in a development environment? In the data science world, you you know you sometimes have random seeds and training data, and you want to be able to re, uh, you want to take a model that's in production and be able to retrain it based on new data. So you should be able to reproduce um, how you got to the model in the first place. Mm -hmm. So then you can, can retrain it. And so reproduct reproducibility in, in uh, data science models, I think, is important. There's a little bit in here about like all the stuff that goes into reproducibility, the 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 data, the hardware, the tool configurations, there's a lot of things that go to make things reproducible. You know, okay. uh, that, there's another part that we didn't talk about. It's all sort of code and configuration and infrastructure as code, the transformations, the, the SQL code, the visualizations, they're all sort of code and you should be able to take data, apply the code and tools to it and get the same results every time you do it. 
Yeah, okay. I see that point. Principle number 13 is simplicity. We believe that continuous attention to technical excellence and good design enhances agility. Likewise, simplicity, the art of maximizing the amount of work not done, is essential. Can you expand a little bit on that? Why that is so important? Oh, it's it's actually hugely important because the idea that data ops is a perspective that we're we're working in teams and we're working on this technically complicated thing. And a lot of organizations, they exist in the world of, oh, you did something in the last project. I'm going to copy. Can you send me your code? All right, I'm going to take your code and apply it again. And then what happens is people do similar things based off of similar set of code or patterns and trying to refactor that or improve it so you can develop uh, more shared libraries, more shared practices, improving the design and improving the complexity. And so it's that is also a really important part of, of teams working together. And I think if you think of your work that you do, your team does every week, and think of it in three buckets. I'm creating new insight as one of the buckets. The second is I'm operating things I'm already have delivered. And then there should be a third bucket, which is this improvement bucket. And partly it could be uh, adding more tests or partly it could be uh, refactoring the code that already exists or trying to redo redesign something again. But, you, you, you know, again, we're managing a technically complicated thing and reducing the complexity of that technically complicated thing by grabbing a bunch of things that are similar and putting them together with a bow on, I think helps us uh, work better as an organization. There's a term that I like in software called, called hairball. And a hairball is a bunch of complicated stuff put together. And uh, analytics is a lot like that, whether it's, you know, the model, the transformation, the visualization, the, you know, the, the, the statistical model, you, you end up creating these complicated hairballs that no one understands and redesign and improvement upon that, focusing on simplicity, uh, actually helps you. And it does, that term, maximizing the amount of work not done is, it, is I, I think, a, a really good, uh, a good way to think about it. Because the other aspect of that is, is by not only refactoring, but by trying to deliver in small batches, you end up, you, you learn people's requirements sooner. And therefore, you may find things that you thought you needed to do that you end up not needing to do. And, and mm. doing just enough to make your customer successful and no more. Yeah. It's also, I think, a, a good a good rule of thumb. And it's taken me sort of years as, as a younger engineer. I wanted to prove my prowess. And I was trying to build really complicated things to show off how, how skilled I was. And the older I got, the less you do to make a, a customer successful, the better. If the T-test does everything or 95% of the insights, then... Well, just go with it. <laughs> yeah, I, when I thought about this hairball and the simplicity, one story came to my mind where I was uh, working on a phase three delivery and we had a couple of people working on it and they jumped directly into it and started to program all kinds of different things and everybody programmed on, on different piece of software and different uh, tables and uh, analytics. And then someone, of course, came and we need to change something here and then everybody needed to go into their code and change things and it was a nightmare until someone came in that was who was a much more senior programmer and said wait a minute we'll simplify things so first 
we don't need so many different analyses. We actually only need a handful and then we can automate them and simplify them and have, you know, don't copy and paste code and then, you know, change a little bit here and copy and paste it again and change a little bit there, but have one source code and then have a macro calling it. And just from seeing the code, it was so much more simple, whereas the code before really much more looked like a hairball. (laughs) So this picture really uh, resonates with me. Yeah. Yeah. And and, sometimes sometimes you do build really complicated things and then you're like that is that's you know you you get to you create hairballs but then the idea of reflecting and trying to improve what you've done before is is a practice because you can unhairball something uh, and that like you said makes can make everyone's life and better in the future so let's go to for today's the last principle which is principle number 14 here but but um i really encourage you to read all 18 um just uh, we don't want to have a three-hour call here, so <laughs> that's why we um, carved it do- uh, down to eighteen uh, to eight here. And number fourteen is analytics is manufacturing. Analytic pipelines are analogous to lean manufacturing lines. We believe a fundamental concept of data ops is a focus on process thinking aimed at achieving continuous efficiencies in the manufacture of analytic insight. I found that really, really interesting to link back analytics to manufacturing. And because that opens up the doors to learn from all the things that work out there. Where do you see actually any anything that doesn't resemble so much manufacturing lines? Is it or is it all manufacturing? Well, I think part of it is manufacturing, right? And, and you know, you've got uh, every people, everyone who talks about data, there's always a diagram where data comes in on the left-hand side and your customers are on the right-hand side and some <laughs> stuff happens in the middle. You know, that, that, that diagram goes everywhere, right? And and the, the stuff that happens in the middle is the manufacturing line because, and there's there's a series of steps, sometimes in a directed graph, sometimes in a straight line. There's a series of tools. Maybe it happens as a stream. Maybe it happens in batch. Um, um, but your, your creation of data and it turns into other data and artifacts that are created from that data are all part of assembling something for your customer. And I think that's a, a good metaphor, that factory metaphor, because then it allows you to actually think of uh, that factory as a process that you can measure and monitor. It allows you to think about, wow, I'm, I'm thinking of my analytics as a product, and therefore I want to focus on lowering error rates. And I think that fact that each one of your tools that you're using, you can see as a station, you should, the idea of, a, of an andon cord that you should be able to stop the assembly line if you found uh, an error before things are done, or thinking of your data suppliers akin to manufacturing part suppliers and trying to work with them to help you give an improved uh, improved data set, because whether you're doing a clinical trial and that input field happens to be a free form when it should be a drop-down menu, affects data quality, and, and which actually affects the whole pipeline of data and, and the manu- manufacturer of insight at the other end. And so there's a lot of metaphors here that I think are useful. I think it does fall down because it's not only manufacturing, right? Because it's also an innovation field like like software where you're trying to 
be able to have these make changes quickly. And so you have to do a couple of things. You've got to run a very good manufacturing line, but you've also got to be able to make changes to that manufacturing line incredibly quickly and, and be able to deploy those changes, much like software developers want to make changes to you know a website and deploy it back. So there's, you know, the, the, it's... I think the metaphor helps some people, uh, especially it helps people in the manufacturing industry because there is a lot of training on, uh, you know, the idea of statistical process control, just keeping track of data values over, you know, over a a couple months and then looking for trend breaks and seeing Mm -hmm. if, okay, I've, one of my suppliers has always given me daily a million rows and after three months, suddenly they've given me 900,000 rows. That's a trend. Is that useful or not useful? Well, it's much useful if you discover that before your customer does. <laughs> um, and, and it could be a, a huge problem. It could not. It all depends on your domain. And so um, that's where the, the metaphor, I think, is helpful. And some of the principles are helpful. Okay. Thanks so much. We covered actually quite a lot today. We heard lots of very, very different stories. And see, for me, one of the key takeaway is that there's a lot of fields out there that can help us to view our world of statistics from a different perspective and learn from these other areas and um, in terms of how we can be better statisticians, have better processes, uh, have better interactions with, with our uh, other stakeholders, being it customers or, or business partners, and therefore actually have a much more motivating and inspiring work every day and get better every day. And so from that perspective, I really enjoyed reading the Data Ops Manifesto. So thanks so much for that. All right, you're welcome. And, and uh, if people are interested, we also wrote a, a book on data ops that you can uh, shows up after you sign the manifesto. You just have to click the link. And um, it also is, uh, you know, uh, we've also had about four or 5,000 people uh, download the book and it's kind of goes further into the best practices that we, that we talk about. Um, and it's also, you don't have to buy it. It's, it's for free. Awesome. Very good. And all the links are in the show notes and then, yep, go and sign the data manifesto. Thanks so much. Thank you much. Have a great day. This show was created in association with PSI and thanks to Rain, as always, who helps with the show in the background. And thank you for listening. You can find all the show notes on theeffectivestatistician.com where you can read a lot more about the Data Ops Manifesto and also learn about other of our uh, podcast episodes to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. There's one thing I would like to ask you. If you would tell at least one colleague about this podcast, it means so much. I know this podcast is helpful to lots of people. Otherwise, the download numbers wouldn't increase on a pretty much weekly basis. And I wouldn't get this really, really nice responses from lots of listeners that tell me how it's helpful for them. And also, I wouldn't get that feedback in one-to-one interactions that I have with listeners. And so please just do me a favor and do your colleagues a favor in sharing this podcast. As always, 
reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.